Welcome to Keith and I Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Ryan Dawson, founder of the Anti-Neocon Report. Check his Substack out, ryandawson.substack.com. And we will also be discussing his book, Separation of Business and State. Mr. Dawson, mm -hmm. thank you for your time. We desperately need a separation of business and state. What evidence or reason do you have to believe that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were intelligence assets? Oof, well, I've actually mapped that all out. So, yeah, you look at their financing. It wasn't just some math teacher that became a pervert. Uh, Glenn's Maxwell comes from a family dynasty of uh, working with the Israeli state. Her father worked with Israeli intelligence. He was one of the whistleblowers on Mordecai Benunu, who was an actual whistleblower on Israel's uh, illegal and secret nuclear weapons. And, of course, they honey-trapped him and threw him in solitary confinement. Um, but, yeah, the Maxwell family is tied to a lot of that money. And so her father was on the payroll of Israeli intelligence. And then Jeffrey Epstein gets hooked in with Les Wexner from the Mega Donors Group, which is this second generation from the Sunborn Institute, which helped create the Israeli state from Rudolf Sunborn. It's a very long story on that. I've made a, a film called New Mech, standing on the shoulders of Grant F. Smith and Roger Monson about uh, the theft of nuclear weapons. But when you understand this clique of, at the time, millionaires in the 40s that helped all the gun running and illegal trafficking to Israel-Palestine, you see that this organized, it's really organized crime, but this unit of prominent businessmen never really disappeared. Uh, it morphed right into the next group, which is the mega group. And one of the, uh, one of the older members of that who has been around for both is Les Wexner. And that's who gave Jeffrey Epstein a house and seemed to be his only real client. And so going back through the, his financial support, and then, of course, his right-hand woman uh, direct ties to her family, to Israeli intelligence. It doesn't take a, a it's not rocket surgery to figure it out. And then you look at, um, yeah, all of his lawyers and who bailed him out in the sweetheart deal with Barry Kersher, who got an award from the ADL, by the way. And the ADL also, from its inception, defending Benai Brith chapter president, who was a murdering rapist pedophile, Leo Frank killed a 13-year-old girl who he had raped named Mary Fagan. They came in to defend him. And the ADL is uh, deeply tied to organized crime. And you see a lot of the same figures, Mo Dalitz, for example, Hank Greenspun, these people who were involved with the Purple Gang or involved with the like the Cleveland Mafia, the Vegas Mafia, uh, who donated a lot of money to Ergun. Mickey Cohen, for example, raised over a million dollars for them. And these are the precursors to the Israeli state with the Haganon, Ergun, and Stern Gang, Lehi, the terrorist groups that became the first government of Israel. If you look at the Jewish agency, which is now an agency in Israel, but all the founding members and prominent members of the JA just ended up being the first Israeli government, including Ben-Gurion, and they were deeply involved in smuggling weapons. And so when you look at that history, it wasn't just about stealing machine guns and planes and eventually highly enriched uranium. It was also, uh, they were also in the business of trafficking people. 
they had a tight relationship with the Somoza family out of Guatemala. They act as a see the U.S. would have these import export restrictions, and they had pretty stringent, uh, tightly watched war assets administration to see that all the surplus from World War II was uh, decommissioned. And they would know who, you know, where not to sell these things in the middle of a Cold War, the Soviet Union. But a lot of the small arms end up in Latin America and they just acted as a third party to then ship it to the places that couldn't directly buy it from the U.S. And, of course, the Israeli terrorist groups were were keen on that. And that would lead up during Iran-Contra when the Sanchez overthrew the Somoza dynasty. The U.S. covertly backed the Contras, even though they had a a public stance that was the opposite of that to fight the Santanistas. And when you see a couple different programs out of that, they needed black budgets to pay for this covert operation. Some of that came from narcotics. Some of that came from contraband from the Israelis to Iran, the faction that had been overthrown uh, by the rebellion there in 79. And those you can trace those family criminals all the way up to the next generation of, uh, of crooks and they're all over Epstein. And I don't know how to summarize it because there's a really long story, <laughs> a lot of people, but there's overwhelming evidence of all these, uh, Israeli assets involved with Epstein's empire is white collar crime, as well as the, uh, human trafficking. Israel was using that as a blackmail operation, uh, but not what most people think. Most people think they were, um, like blackmailing politicians. That really wasn't the aim. They already had the politicians through bribes, APAC, and the normal routes. They had Clinton even. But what they were really aiming at was U.S. science and technology. And so they went after universities, Ohio State, MIT, for example, and Wexner's with the Abigail and Les Wexner Foundation had a lot of uh, clout and everything in Ohio, but especially OSU and a lot of the prominent universities up there. And they use that as a money laundering operation through Epstein's LLCs. He'd set up some innocuous like LLC about Gratitude America, for example. And then he would get money um, from Wexner and also from Leon Black, hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, who would donate it to one of his LLCs and then donate it to Epstein's. It would just go in a circle um, so that they could have influence. And why, why would they need a university? Is because university grants are used for R&D for private companies. For example, Microwire out of New Jersey was teamed up with different universities and grad students, which are like indentured servants. You know, they work for credits, but they would get the trade secrets and they would partner with universities because that's the only way they could afford it is to have a portion of it um, done by the university because the university is getting money from the state. This is, again, how it gets all messed up. And then they would just sell it to Israel or steal it, and they would get it first uh, and normally uh, reverse engineer it and be like, aha, look what we did. And they're just openly spying and stealing from U.S. private companies. And so... They had the door. They had Ido at IT, MIT. He even forced Bill Gates to donate money there on his behalf. He couldn't do it openly because he'd already been caught uh, raping a 14-year-old and went to prison, but not really because six days a week he, he, had, he was on work leave. But 
the school, it would look horrible if they took his money. So he would get it the money through intermediaries. And it was a real nice flex for Epstein to be like, Haha, Bill Gates, richest man in the world at the time, donated millions of dollars, but made sure he let him know this is, this is on Epstein's behalf. <laughs> so that he would get the clout and the influence from it. And you see him, you would see him do that a lot. He was in UNC. He was, he was all over the place. A lot of prominent universities, especially in science. Um, they were, he wasn't just like interested in science. The Israelis were interested in stealing trade secrets. That's what it was. Now, as far as they did have some senators and, ju and judges and Bill Richardson, who just passed away. He was an Epstein client. He blackmailed him for the most petty reason, though. He had a giant ranch in New Mexico. And so he honey trapped the governor so that he could get the zoning laws changed for himself so he could build the ranch much larger and deeper than what had been allowed and up until that time. And um, Richards complied because they had him with a 15 year old. So that'll do it. Are you familiar with uh, looks like Alexander Acosta, who was a former U S attorney in Miami actually said oh, yeah. that um, yeah. was, it's uh, intelligence back belong, off. Right. <laughs> belong yeah. to intelligence. Uh, can mm -hmm. I get a uh, follow-up uh, on this uh, fr from the media? Well, it wasn't the CIA that? spying on itself, right? This is the Israelis. Everybody around, let's see, Maxwell's father worked for Israeli intelligence. He's getting money from uh, Israeli proxies that donate to all the different Zionist organizations. Because Wexner, for example, the first president of the Wexner Foundation, Rabbi Herbert Friedman, was from Sunborn. And he ends up being the first president. <laughs> and then they donated millions of dollars to Hud Barak, of, uh, who ended up becoming prime minister of Israel. And they did that through reporting, Carbine. They had some little intermediaries, but, you know, millions of dollars, I think 5.4 or $6 million went into his coffers, which is a lot more back then than it is now. And that was Wexner. And the Wexner Foundation did that. And Jeffrey Epstein's a trustee on the Wexner Foundation. So he's not only getting money from, from Wexner and a house, he's also a trustee on his board, and his board is giving money to Israeli prime ministers. And, you know, several Israeli prime ministers have also been, like, one of their presidents was convicted of rape, Moshe Katsev, and um, another Ahud, Ahud Omar, went to jail. He was a kitty fiddler, and he was also a client for Epstein. So. And people are like, where's the client yeah. list? I've released that like 12 times. It's just, it's what's happened is it's been Alex Jones. I use that as a verb. They um, released a bunch of fake lists, which are nothing but lazy copies of either Maxwell's Black Book that everybody thinks is Epstein's or the flight logs. And not everybody that was on a flight was involved with you know, raping kids and not everybody in the black book is either. These are just all their context period. And it's really lazy way. I've actually picked through and listened to the victims and went and found the clients. And it's annoying that people act like this is some, they're waiting to find like a book in a locker or something. It's not like that. They didn't write them all down like that. <laughs> The yeah. client list is the list that you can compile from knowing all of his associates that have already been caught. You know, Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, there's a long list of them. 
it's sort of like the the families of victims for 9-11 suing for information we already have they're trying to they want to know what the saudis were doing and that's already in the jis report and nobody reads it and but that's one that got alex jones too they you know what happened in september 11th they just every retarded theory you can think of from holograms to missiles has been thrown out there to to kookify the whole subject matter and also to keep people so confused that they can't get to the bottom of it like if you weren't alive when it happened you'd never be able to figure it out through google because it's going to go to nonsense and that's starting to happen with epstein too there's a cult out there that thinks he faked his death and he's still alive and all this crap and you know they did that with jfk it, it seems to be a when i say they that's a combination of spooks and kooks there are plenty of kooks that will do it all on their own mm -hmm. it's not it's not operation mockingbird it's just there are a lot of dummies out there and they know it's clickbait and they'll run with the story but yep, Epstein's it, definitely dead. <laughs> they didn't fake it. All right, I'll stop looking for. But you him. asked about Acosta. Yeah, he did. He did complain that he was told to back off that it was intelligence. And uh, and there it, were magazine editors and stuff that said that to their employees too. They said get off, get rid of these Epstein stories. And there were um, there were journalists for CBS and other televised news networks that were told the same thing: drop this story. That's right. Amy Robach was uh, called by uh, like the, uh, the the royal uh, palace, uh, whatever, and she's like, "Yeah, well, mm -hmm. we were told to back off, or else we would lose Vicky access Ward too. to Will yep. and oh gosh, uh, Will and Kate, or you know uh, the other yeah, one whoever the princess and prince are. They like you're gonna lose access to that, and that that wasn't why we know that Prince Andrew used to uh, he visit him in Epstein and. Maxwell, both in the UK and Paris, he, Paris has a Disneyland, not Disney World, Disneyland, and they would bring like little, little kids to Disneyland. And I guess Disneyland was the real magic kingdom for pedophiles, too, because it's just full of little kids everywhere. And yeah, they would, um, <laughs> it's sick, man. They, they, they had a modeling agency guy out from Paris called Jean-Luc Burnell. He actually started with tel aviv but um he had a paris branch of karen models that they rename mc squared and then they got it branches in miami and new york and and uh kiev ukraine and a lot of these models would feed into wexner's ll brands so abercrombie and finch victoria's secret that kind of stuff uh and some of these brands need child models for children's clothing and this would be the pretext of why oh all these girls are rehearsing or something and some of them would just end up somewhere and they'd take their passports away they'd force them into sex work uh he died in prison by the way jean luc Brunel did all by himself killed himself all by himself yeah there is uh so much uh, <laughs> allegedly uh, on uh, <laughs> on this topic uh you have just a hood barack uh, hanging out at Jeffrey Epstein's house, completely covering his face. This is the prime minister of oh, Israel. Yeah. He had like a fuzzy hat. And yeah. it was so stupid because all the New Yorkers knew when the when Israeli prime minister or president was there because they all had the same um, entourage of like black SUVs and limousines and stuff. 
And so, you know, all you have to do is follow that around, you know, with somebody. But that's something else because you think about that. Ahud Bharat doesn't need to go visit Epstein in person if he's gathering intelligence, does he? You can send someone to go do that. There's only one reason to come in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, it looks like Anne and Marie Farmer had gone to the FBI as early as 1996 with allegations against Epstein and Maxwell. Uh, but we know that government inefficiency is a thing, but just all of these adding up certainly seems like uh, Epstein and Maxwell were uh, intelligence assets. As far as other methods of... Uh, Maria Farmer and Cleary also, uh, Molly, they told they tried to tell the FBI, but they didn't care. It really took until the Trump administration where some of these people got... Some of the leftover from Clinton and Obama were gutted and replaced that someone was there to hear anything from these girls. And they've really are, given up. I mean, you go in their house and there's pictures of Clinton there and there's pictures of all these prominent world leader, Tony Blair, you know, and you think the, the cops aren't going to do anything. He, he did the same trick to the police department in Palm Beach. He set up an LLC and he had them donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to the police department. Are you uh, familiar with uh, the Franklin scandal and what appeared <laughs> yeah. to be a similar blackmail operation uh, in the 1980s? No, it wasn't blackmail. They were that was tied to MK Naomi, which is uh, MK Ultra for children, and they were trafficking kids to Mexico for um, illegal organs. Oh, see, uh, my understanding was that it was a blackmail operation, um, and this was from Paul Bonassi, the first whistleblower who came forward to john DeCamp, and they'd have this guy rusty nelson taking pictures uh and using that to blackmail in nebraska and in washington dc are you familiar with any of that boys town was a big cult in nebraska that where they were blackmailing people and they were hooked all these children on heroin and stuff and forced into prostitution with the using drugs as a way of keeping them around and also discrediting them if they got out of line but the finders cult was in Virginia and mostly and Maryland. And it was, it was sick, man. It was like human experiments and it was a lot worse than uh, just kitty porn. And as far as other uh, Israeli uh, spying operations, there was a uh, multiple part series by, I think his name is Carl Cameron on Fox news mm-hmm. about an Israeli spy ring in America that was uh, trying to keep us safe from terrorism. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, yeah, that's what they what, were doing. <laughs> what do we need to know about uh, the uh, Israeli spy ring sometimes? I think Ramondo uh, referred to them as the five dancing Israelis as they're known today. So those are two different things. Ramondo wrote a book called Terror Enigma that did go over the dancing Israelis. And there were five of them arrested in a van. There were only three of them celebrating that the, all the witnesses saw at Dork Towers, but you know, um, <clears throat> one of those threes is brothers with one of the other two added up the five. That's a separate event from the art student ring, which is the spy ring that Carl Cameron was talking about. And Carl Cameron was also talking about an earlier spy ring and through telecommunications companies that got caught spying, you know. The ADL was caught spying on the United States too. But um, 
what what the Israelis were doing is they had set up uh, back doors through our telecommunication and wiretapping process. So they would have the info, they would know who is calling, where they're calling from. And so it'd be very easy to share this information. And a lot of um, FBI and DEA were complaining that Al-Qaeda suspects who they were monitoring and following would suddenly change all their communications processes and go dark and as if someone was tipping them off. And then Israeli art students, they weren't really art students, is what they call their liars, were following them around, living next door to them, living next door to their post office boxes. When they, whenever, like when Atta went from Florida to New York, so did they. And so one of the ties between the art student ring and the the dancing Israelis that work for the moving companies, and moving companies is a great cover because you can have a van outside of wherever and act like, oh, we're just moving in somebody somewhere. And that, you know, it's a listening band. That's how you had to do it back in 2000, 2001. When the full field office reports came in, Miami had shared with the Newark office that um, one of the 9-11 hijack suspects who are, it was um, Alomari, he's one of the 19, he's in the ATM photos with Muhammad Atta in Maine. He's on a <clears throat> flight that hit New York had actually received a ride from <laughs> a front company, Classic International Movers, which is run by Israeli intelligence. So they were moving these guys around. Um, but primarily the art students were, had already been spying on the DEA for this giant ecstasy trade that Israel was involved in that they use as black budget to pay for you know, give them plausible deniability so they don't have to get the money from the Knesset and pay for illegal means. And rather than starting a brand new ring, they just um, built upon one that already existed and expanded the art student uh, DEA spying to also monitor Al Qaeda in Florida, which they did. And they say that they did inform the US and got ignored, uh, but actually, the warning they gave was so vague. It, it wasn't matter like, Oh, so they're planning an attack sometime in the next six months. It's like where, how they knew, they knew they were going to flight schools. They knew who they were. They knew their names. They didn't share any of that information. Of course, even if they had, it wouldn't have mattered because come to find out the CIA knew damn well about uh, at least two of the hijackers. Now we Hazmi and Khalid al-Midhar because they had followed them to an Al-Qaeda summit meeting in Malaysia where they spent the night with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM. They knew where they were living in Florida because they had a Saudi asset monitoring them. Omar Bayoumi and Osama Basnan, they bought them a house. They sent them money through their wives and Riggs Bank and cutting checks and things. They had all that intel, and then they also had an Iranian informant who had gotten info on Afghanistan, flip and tell the Washington field office everything. They're going to use airplanes. They're already in the United States. Here's where to look. And this guy, Mike Fageli, put the kibosh on it. No one wanted to hear it. So I don't think it would have mattered if the Israelis had told them everything they knew because the incompetence was so high or worse. they already knew and didn't care i mean that's some people are that cynical they like wanted 9-11 to happen or something but 
be it as it may, the Israelis didn't share anything and they definitely knew and they were celebrating the attacks. They thought it was great. And they followed that up by another lie saying that, oh, yeah, you know what else? Guess what? Guess what? Saddam Hussein is sponsoring Al Qaeda. He gave him anthrax at this meeting in Prague. And that was all BS. There was no meeting in Prague. Rock didn't have any weapons of mass destruction, much less anthrax. And they sure as hell didn't give it to Muhammad Atta. And, and yet, to come full circle, the origin, the main origin of that lie, because Czech intelligence, they, they reneged on it immediately. But the Israeli security forces said that they witnessed a transfer of anthrax from Iraq to Al-Qaeda in Prague. And that story was given to the New York Observer, which is owned by Charles Kushner, from James Woolsey, the former director of the CIA. And who appointed him? Bill Clinton, who hated his guts. Why did he appoint this neocon who he couldn't stand and he wouldn't even take verbal briefings from? Because that's who Epstein told him had to be there. <laughs> James Woolsey was an exchange. That's like, why were you blackmailing Clinton? What did you want him to do so bad? He can't just invade Iraq without a pretext. He did bomb some radar or whatever after the Lewinsky scandal, but he wouldn't pull the trigger on that. But they had the CIA. They had Woolsey. And he would pop up again later into that lie about anthrax in 9-11. And that all started from the Israelis. And, all, and so did every other lie about Iraq. If you look at the office's special plans and you really... Zoom in at Doug Fife and Pearl and Worms and Ladine and the rest of them. Each sing, each lie uh, came from this cabal. It got reiterated in the PNAX Weekly Standard by people like Robert Kagan, Fred Barnes, Gary Schmidt. They all lied about anthrax, for example. And they are the ones that, with Miller and Sapphire, lying about uh, aluminum tubes. Sapphire lied about chemical weapons under Saddam's palaces. And this is just a Zionist clique. And Pearl had already been caught spying for Israel in the past, and yet he's still working in the DOD, not at some smuck-level position either. He was the head of defense for policy board. And guess who he hired? Other Israeli spies. Duh. And then there's the Franklin scandal while that was going on. That was more about lying about Iran. It never went through. Sharon wanted to attack Iran first. Everyone else said, no, it's got to be Saddam. He's aiding Palestinians. But the whole Iraq war was based on lies from Israel. And uh, the winner of that war is Israel because they ended up getting three-fourths of their oil from Iraq. But um, they they did erroneously tie it to September 11th attacks through these anthrax notes. And um, when you look at September 11th and the fact that these foreign intelligence agencies that were assisting the hijackers... And the U.S. seems completely disinterested in following the money or some explanation. Or why, did, why did you buy them a house? Yeah, that'd be a good question to ask. Or if you were following them around from Florida to New York, why didn't you, I don't know, arrest them or tell us and tell the police or something? <laughs> Nothing. Why are you sitting there flicking lighters and dancing and high-fiving after a plane runs into a building. Do you think it's funny that a bunch of people just died? They didn't care. You know, that story never even hit the news. Um, it was in, like, the, you couldn't avoid it from the local papers. It was in the Virgin Record. It was in the Jewish Daily Forward. It was on the radio in New York and New Jersey and stuff. But 
that was that along with they had trucks full of bombs and that got reported live on cbs on on um <clears throat> on fox they're like are talking on abc and the following day they asked bernard carrick and giuliani about it and they didn't deny that it happened they just said well they're under we have those guys in custody well okay and then nothing <laughs> you know and then there's the question of flight 23 10 people arrested nine of them released what the hell's going on and i i don't know i'll just go on and on about 9 11 forever but because i made a five-hour film about it but it's like, where do you go with the information? The same with Epstein. I feel like one of these Epstein girls, who are you supposed to tell when it's the FBI and the CIA doing it? You know, like, who do you, the media is going to lie, especially about Israel. I mean, look at the occupation of Palestine. You, that's not a one day event, that's ongoing every day. They openly take a bulldozer, knock someone's house down. Nobody cares. You just move into someone's living room. Not one station is going to report it. You think they're going to talk about Israeli involvement in the largest terrorist attack in the United States? Hell no. You know, there's nowhere to go with it. Uh, and what, foreign what, media, maybe. I mean, what did you find in your Freedom of Information Act uh, requests uh, regarding the oh, uh, a ton? Yeah. Oh, so, okay. The guys you were asking about, the dancing Israelis, plus the other two that joined them, they did get arrested that afternoon or that evening. And all five of them, they all failed lie detector tests miserably. They all had different stories. So if you'd all just, I don't know, went to your went to work making boxes was a secondary business and the primary business was moving furniture and stuff. If you had just gotten up, gone to work, oh, 9-11 happened. Everybody remembers where they were when they heard the news that planes that hit the twin towers mm -hmm. especially these guys because they were positioned in a van to film it and celebrate it but you wouldn't all have different stories and they all tried to lie and say that they got there much later than they did proven by the fact not only of the witnesses but of their own camera even though they had rewound the um clock on it by like 14 and a half hours it didn't matter because there's pictures of the World Trade Center. Only one of them has been hit. And there was a helicopter in the background that had been hovering over the Hudson River for some uh, radio station. And they knew exactly what time that was where it was. And so from that, you could deduce when these photographs were taken. And, you know, like Yarn Schmill said, they weren't there until 10 a.m. <laughs> like, no. 10 a.m. Both towers have been hit and we're gone. You are a liar. Um, they said on the West Side Highway, the first words out of the driver's mouth, Sivan Kersberg, was, we're not your problem. Your problems are our problem. The Palestinians are the problem. <laughs> Unprovoked. Just starts bringing up Palestine. They say they're there to document the event. And then Paul Kersberg, who's the oldest who's the brother of the driver and who's the leader of the group admitted that the Jewish agency sent them there, that they weren't really um, furniture movers, no shit. And then they had uh, over like five grand in cash as you do as a, you know, minimum wage mover of furniture, you know, walking around five K in New York city. They um, all had tickets for immediate dates to leave the country like India, Australia, Germany, 
um, going to these exotic vacations as you do as a minimum wage you know, worker in New York that moves furniture. You have thousands of dollars in a paid vacation to India, <laughs> whatever, or to Germany. And immediately, too, you know, in a random Tuesday in September, you're going to quit your job and fly to Australia. And of course, Dominic Suter, the owner of Urban Moving Systems, where all these guys worked, uh, shut his business down on 9-11 and also fled the country with his wife. And he was listed as a 9-11 suspect, along with Osama bin Laden and others. And when Justin Armando pointed that out, because it, it broke on cryptomy, and so he just got it from there. And it was also <laughs> the 9-11 suspects list that they sent to other countries like Argentina and Italy and wasn't redacted or secret at all. It's just in Spanish or Italian or Polish or whatever. And there's all the names. Well, name's a name. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's nothing to even translate. So I, I remember seeing that in Spanish and going, oh, look, I got a copy of the 9-11 suspect list. They didn't. They didn't censor the foreign copies, morons. Um, we have suitors on there. And when Ramondo reported that news, instead of going, oh, my gosh, the leader of Urban Moving Systems, who had 16 computer hard drives, a little overkill for moving furniture, uh, fled to Israel on September 11th and wouldn't get questioned in person by the FBI. And a bunch of his employees are all have different timelines and are lying their ass off and uh, they got all this cash and da da da. No, no, no. That wasn't the interest. It was how did this guy get this information? And the FBI started to spy on antiwar.com because Justin leaked info that was publicly available online anyway. That was the response. The FBI was more worried about how did this journalist get this story than the fact that the guys did it. <laughs> Now, when it comes to uh, other historical events, people might say like, well, 9-11, oh, if this is all true, I would have heard about it. Uh, this certainly would have leaked. If we could show a pattern of there are a number of historical events that what the press reports, whether it's, you know, 100 years ago or even today, doesn't necessarily reflect. Well, yeah, reality. ongoing event. Like I said, the occupation of Palestine. Have you ever seen yep. it on TV? No. Have you seen any honest reporting on Ukraine and Russia? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, did anybody come out during the entire else. build up to the Iraq war and say they don't have any evidence of WMDs? No. Even after the fact, they never clearly said, oh, yeah, they kept looking for him. Right. They kept saying, oh, Judith Miller even wrote a piece saying, I think they moved him to Syria. And her sources were Wolfowitz and Pearl and Israeli security forces like those three aren't going to lie. <laughs> yeah. They never really, I don't know if you want to get into Oklahoma City or any of that stuff, but they never were honest about it. And I guess Iran Contra is the one time where, you know, people went to prison and, but 90% of them got commuted or pardoned or never gotten any serious trouble. Ali North ran for president oh. after Iran Contra. Like the guy should be in prison. So I don't know. And then, yeah, I mean, you can go back. Signal intelligence in 2005 proved, yep, there was no Gulf of Tonkin. They didn't fire on our boats. <laughs> like, duh. You can go back to, um, you don't even have to go back that far, really, but just saying that's a big one for a lot of people. I mean, because people got drafted in Vietnam, my parents' age, they're, they were in that war, and, well, you know, 55 to 58,000 Americans died over there. 
and it was started in a false pretext. They never fired on our ship. You know who did fire on one of our ships? The Israelis, uh, the USS Liberty. And John McCain's father covered that up. And a lot of Americans, unless they heard it online, they've never heard of the Liberty. Lyndon Johnson made excuses. I don't want to embarrass an ally. Of course, he was sleeping with an Ergun terrorist, Matilda Krim, who was the wife of some <laughs> Arthur Krim, who worked for Johnson. He's a willing cuck, though. He knew about the whole thing. He was with her on the day of the Six-Day War. So they twisted his arm into that. And then there's JFK, and I know that's a big can of worms, but only anybody serious thinks Oswald did that by himself from, like, including our own government. Our own government in the 70s did the House Select Committee on Assassinations and determine multiple shooters based on acoustic evidence. So, I mean, even the official story is multiple shooters at JFK. I was like, okay, well, who's the other shooter or shooters? They're not interested because it, if it leads back to the group you can't say anything about, then you're not going to hear about it. And that's what it happened. <laughs> like, yeah, if it, really if it had been anybody other than them, you would know about it. <laughs> yeah, th they have all the courage in the world to go after the Proud Boys and uh, CNN, oh, you know, was able to catch that woman. Uh, who I think was in Ohio, who shared a post that came from Russia. I mean, these they have so much courage in the face of people with no institutions. Somebody power. shook a fence 17 years in jail. Somebody had a loudspeaker in the Capitol building 18 years in jail. And yet people can openly go and shoplift like $900 worth of stuff and on film with their face, fill up a whole bag of stuff and just walk out and not get arrested. Yeah. It, it, well, uh, hell, they could burn the city down like they were doing in Kenosha, set car lots on fire and Home Depot and all, just burning buildings, raiding, and face zero consequences until they ran into Kyle Rittenhouse. Not even zero consequences. Celebrities will uh, come together and raise money, money yeah. to bail you out. If, if they even get arrested, they get bailed out. They quit even arresting them. They're filming them, beating windows with baseball bats and stuff. And what's pathetic is these people are such shrimps. They're, they have to hit a window over and over with a bat, and they still can't break it. <laughs> One of the most amazing things after January 6th was seeing how embarrassed Democrats were. They're like, oh, God, our side was mad at, you know, the cops and the government and, you know, the people who we defended went and, you know, brutalized, totally innocent, powerless people in neighborhoods across America. Uh, the right wing Trump supporters got mad at the government and in one day just like went inside the Capitol, broke in, intimidated the most powerful people on Earth. Y you could see how jealous they were uh, that they had been defending this totally evil psychopathy. They're like, oh, we're here for the working class and uh, we're going to burn. Suddenly down they love police. Yeah, yeah. Really. Yeah. Suddenly they love police and they murdered Ashley Babbitt and at January 6th was COINTELPRO and they asked them, did you have agents dressed as Trump supporters? I can't answer that. <laughs> okay. So yes. <laughs> Under oath. Yeah. That yeah. Was, was it Christopher Ray who said that? I remember it was a woman who said it under oath on camera. Um, during Christopher Ray is tied to Rosemont Sintica and the Biden's profiteering too. It's like he had $21 million to uh, lie. I Trump never should have kept these people. William Barr either. He's a spineless bitch. His father uh, knew Jeffrey Epstein, worked at the Dalton School. It's this group. It's amazing how prevalent pedophilia is. 
I never thought there were so many. I thought it was a super rare condition like necrophilia or any other kind of weird thing. Because the kids, you know, even babies, they're into that weird stuff. There's so many people that are attracted to that, to the, I don't know if it's the form or the conquest or the psychology of it, like ruining the person or what, but there's some sickos, man. And they're all over the DNC. When it comes to, um, uh, Accuracy with regard to historical events, the, uh, the the two holy wars in American history would be the American Civil War to uh, stop uh, slavery, along with <laughs> the Second World War to stop National Socialism. I want to get yeah. into both of those. What is it okay. that uh, people need to know about the American Civil War that they don't? Well, first of all, it wasn't in slavery. <clears throat> You had several northern states that had slaves. And, and of course, the piece of Virginia, which is now West Virginia, uh, stayed in the Union and kept their slaves. Kentucky and Delaware and New Jersey didn't end slavery until the 13th Amendment. So a nice six months after the war was over, the North still had slaves. The South didn't. And that was black slavery. And California still had Native American and Chinese slavery. They had the Cooley trade for a number of years. And There's... um. Before the war, I mean, slavery was an issue that was going on at the same time as the Civil War. And it was something that was brought up in the middle of the war. Lincoln had his Emancipation Proclamation, but it didn't free any slaves. He, he only, like all the territories he controlled, the entire North and a little bit of Tennessee, he said, slavery, we're going to keep slavery. And all the territories he couldn't, he had zero power in, he said, oh yeah, you guys are free. <laughs> so like... It didn't matter. He was just trying to create a slave revolt. And the opposite happened. Uh, revolts broke out in the North, New York City in particular, where they went around hanging and lynching black people because they, then they were started blaming them for the war. Like, oh, I'm not going to war for no N-words. You know? um, they didn't care about whether they were slaves Lincoln was opposed to slavery as an institution, but not because of some altruism or humanity for black people. Quite the opposite. He didn't want to expand slavery to the West because he thought it was an abomination for whites and blacks to live together at all and that they should not ever be together. They should never come together where they're already separate. So if they went West, don't bring the slaves with you. They, he wanted the blacks and whites separated. He had a plan to repatriate blacks uh, to the Caribbean, to Panama, or back to Africa. In fact, he maintained that plan and was discussing that with his cabinet members three days before John Wilkes Booth, praise his name, put an end to Lincoln. Uh, that's what he was doing. It was because he thought with Lee surrender. The war was pretty much, you know, over. The North was going to be victorious, and he was plotting like, "What are we going to do with these these blacks? Because they can't stay here." When he, the only slaves he did free during the war or allowed to be freed was in Washington D.C. because the capital of the North had slaves <laughs> up until the middle of the war. And what he did was he paid the slave owners three hundred dollars. 
and he offered any freedman a hundred dollars if he'd leave the country. And then a lot of them, of course, they put in um, as cannon fodder. About ten percent of the Union Army was black by the end of the war. Forty percent of the army was mercenaries from overseas. Uh, so almost half of the Union Army wasn't from the Union. And then Grant had his contraband camps, uh, where about a million black people were in these camps, and um, untold thousands died from disease. If if they got hurt, injured, sick, I mean, they just throw them on the wagon with injured horses and let them die. They let them starve, um, or they, you know, send them in as a human wave. They didn't care, and they'd heard these rumors. Oh yeah, and uh, look, the North needed them to pick the cotton. They needed tents. They didn't have enough cotton, and that's what they did. And emancipation was a horrible thing. And let me explain, because <laughs> ending slavery is a good thing, but emancipation just cold turkey okay you're free everyone's still racist north and south that was very common you don't have any skills you can't read you don't but you're free go find a job no one's gonna hire you you don't want to do anything except what you're doing and they just end up becoming sharecroppers and a large percentage of the black population uh, disappeared between 1865 and 1900 and uh you know yeah they weren't moving to canada or anything they and the, you know a lot of poor whites had the same fate. The sharecroppers, they they died, um, and they're not counted as casualties in the Civil War. They may die five, six, seven years after, but um, they couldn't meet have ends meet. Reconstruction was horrible, and a lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of blacks move up north and face worse prejudice than ever um, because there was no opportunity in the South. They were economically devastated, so we go and the rust belts and mining uh, businesses and construction especially and were just treated like dirt and ended up back on the slavery spectrum along with the Irish and other poor immigrants who are being paid in script and if you know what script pay is it's it's not like you get a dollar you get this special kind of money that can only be spent at the company store so whatever they pay you, they get back again. <laughs> and they would do horrible things like rent them their equipment. So you have a pickaxe and whatever to go in the mine, but you got to rent it from the company. So here's your wage. You would figure out you, you couldn't save, you couldn't anything. And that led to the Blair Mountain Rebellion. And this is the 1920s. This is way after the Civil War. Slavery continued under the form of script pay. And then you have the Colorado coal strikes and some other strikes, Logan County and Eventually, they abandoned script, started paying people real money. But it took like World War I veterans to come home and fight with the federal government for three months. <laughs> a million rounds, a million rounds of ammunition. They even used the Air Force on them uh, to, to get those labor rights for real and really put an end to slavery. So it didn't come around from wearing pink pussy hats. It came from a bunch of rednecks. And I mean that literally. That's the word redneck is from the Blair Mountain Rebellion where they had the red bandana that they'd tie around their neck so they would know who's who when they're fighting these goons and private detective agencies and things. That's these West Virginia rednecks, black and white, all fighting um, 
against the script pay and living conditions. They lived in tents and it was awful. And if you look at the rest of the, how the railroads were built after the war, the amount of racism is like, oh, we fought the end this. What happened to Greasy Grass or Little Bighorn or <clears throat> Wounded Knee twice? And it's Custer. It's Union generals. It's it's all the same Union commanders that were in the war out there killing the Lakota and the Sioux and total genocide, by the way. I mean, they lost at Little Bighorn, but they they massacred um, basically old people and children at Wounded Knee, women. And they uh, had the policy of shooting the buffalo later and starving them. You know how it went. And uh, now and again, they might lose a battle. Captain Jack stuck it to him. Crazy Horse stuck it to him. The Apache were a handful, especially Nietzsche and Geronimo. But through attrition, they just kept moving across. Comanche got wiped out because of all the new weapons the Civil War had made. Gatlin guns, six shooters, and revolvers. And then there was smallpox. So, Because they had defeated. This is pretty Chad. The Comanche had defeated the Spanish the Mexicans, the United States, and the Confederates in field of battle and just about every other native group around there. But they eventually lost to uh, disease and six-shot revolvers. But that was the outgrowth of um, what I don't know what you call them, NATO weapons from the Civil War really started this whole America as the arms exporter king of the world. The Gatling guns, the first submarine, um, a lot of different types of revolvers and rifled cannon and, of course, the ironclads and all this stuff comes from the Civil War. And afterward, it, it got pumped out. The British Empire was buying it. French were buying it. Everybody's buying these new toys from the United States. And it's exactly as Lee had written to Lord Acton. He, it's afraid if uh, the Union won this, it would be nothing but imperialism abroad and despots at home. And that's exactly what it became. But they were not fighting to end slavery. The North had their own slaves. And they were offered the Corwin Amendment before the war. The Corwin Amendment enshrined slavery in the Constitution, and it was ratified by the North. All the South had to do is vote yes. But in order to do that, they'd have to stay in the union. So the deal was, if you will stay in the union, we are not going to touch labor laws at all. And they had already given up expanding slavery west. So this is just some like Tennessee and Virginia had plans and New Jersey too to phase slavery out over time. <clears throat> and in fact, Virginia and Tennessee ended slavery during the Civil War. Virginia ended slavery before West Virginia. And of course, as I said earlier, Delaware, Kentucky, New Jersey never gave up their slaves. Neither did California. Uh, California made it illegal on paper, but they had slaves. Like no, there was no question they were practicing slavery there. No matter what was written in the Nevada territories, had slavery, and so did Oklahoma. So, and all that didn't matter. Um, <clears throat> but they did not take the not one Southern state took the Corbin Amendment deal because that was not the reason for secession. The reason for secession starts in South Carolina, the exact same reason that South Carolina tried to secede before. You know, 30, 36 years before the Civil War, the exact same issue over the tariffs. South Carolina, which is the fourth largest port city in the United States, was Charleston. 
I mean, it's like, you know, Boston and New York are like in Charleston. Charleston was the fourth largest port city. And because New Orleans hadn't been until the railroads got down there, they couldn't really drain the swamps. It wasn't like a city city like it is now. It was it, it would had about 100,000 people there, which is about the same size as Florida at the time. Florida was a state. <laughs> it was about as big as New Orleans. Florida and Texas were not these giant states back in the 1860s like they are now. The largest southern state was Virginia. The second largest was North Carolina in population. Even without West Virginia, Virginia was the largest state. Virginia had been the center of political influence for the United States for the, you know, most of the early presidents, most of the founders, the Constitution to Bill of Rights, they're all Virginians. And some of the Northeast and all like, hey, this is a little bit too Virginia secret, uh, centric. And they're right. But again, that's also where most people live, whereas Virginia and Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania's largest northern state. That would change because of just sheer proximity to to Europe. A lot of the English and Irish and stuff are coming over to Boston and coming over to New York. And the Northeast starts to grow. And because of the potato famines, a lot of the Irish are going there. And so as their population increased, their political clout increased, and they realized, hey, we can vote ourselves money. We outnumber them. And so we, you know, what do we care about the tariffs in South Carolina? Because 85% of the revenue is getting spent on our debts. So you had the South subsidizing the North. They were voting themselves money. That was the reason for secession. They, they're like, you're taxing cash crops, tobacco, cotton, exports in general, but then we're not receiving the benefit from that. It's all going to Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. And so, and there was just a dramatically different culture. It's not like today, somebody from Mississippi, somebody from Indiana, not that different really, but back then it's a clear divide. So there's a whole bunch of reasons. The main reason is economics, like any war, it's about money. And a lot of the bankers got in Lincoln's ear because he was a little reluctant at first. And then he, he starts the war. The South did not start the war at Fort Sumter. Lincoln sent uh, armed ships there. He sent the Harriet Lane, SS Harriet Lane, which is a revenue cutter, and six warships to Charleston and fired on the Nashville. Then they fired like around Fort Sumter. No one even died. They were just like, come on, give this up. And that was Lincoln's pretext. And I don't know what he thought. He either thought they're going to capitulate or it's going to start a war. I don't know what other outcome costly think was coming he wanted war they all thought it was going to be quick they all thought well we have more people more guns more money we'll lick the south in a couple weeks and then they went down the bull run and lost because of uh stonewall jackson and uh ended up being all the way until 1865 <laughs> you know four four years later a million people dead uh and lincoln never did see the end of it because they shot him but he did not he did not free a single slave that wasn't brought up for two years. And again, they rejected the Corbin Amendment, which gave him the opportunity to keep the slaves. Basically, most Southerners were fighting because the North invaded. And, you know, <laughs> they burned Atlanta. They burned Columbus. And, uh, you know, someone's coming to burn your house down. You're going to sign up and fight. And imagine that would be like, you know, when we invaded Iraq, I don't think they were fighting for Saddam Hussein. I think they're fighting because we're in their country, blowing up their buildings and killing them. And they're going to fight the invaders. The North attacked the South with an army and Navy. 
North Carolina, Virginia, and, and Tennessee, and, and Arkansas had not seceded until after the blockade and after the attack on South Carolina. One so of, if they hadn't done that, there wouldn't have been a war. One of the uh, books you cite in the uh, anti-neocon library is um, Lincoln Unmasked along with The Real Lincoln. And when I read that book, I was shocked to see uh, Lincoln's letter to uh, Horace Greeley. I think he was the founder of the New York Tribune, where Lincoln said, mm -hmm. my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union. And it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would do that. At mm -hmm. what point uh, are we called conspiracy theorists for citing primary documents? But they're just like, well, I have a feeling that uh, his idea <laughs> was to liberate the world. He he was the Zelensky of his day. Not allowing just look at his first to speech to Congress. His first speech to Congress in April said, I did this to collect the revenue. That if these states are allowed to secede, the entire North would be crippled because it's 85 percent of the revenue. Yeah, I think it was called the moral tariff. I just because Well, the, the morale tariff was at 45% export tax, but Lincoln on top of that had freight taxes and import taxes in addition to the export. And of course, by doing the the uh the import tax on British and French goods, they they reacted with tariff on American goods. And well, what are they buying? They're buying cotton and to buy things from the south so the north doesn't care go ahead tax because we don't sell that anyway and they'll often cite well uh, look at these exports from new york in 1859 it's like yeah from south carolina sent to new york by rail and then shipped out <laughs> like duh it, it's still them paying and the freight taxes went on during reconstruction too and it was rigged in such a manner that it was cheaper to get steel from Pennsylvania to Alabama than it was to get from one side of Alabama to the other. Mm. Cause they had different taxes depending on location. It wasn't uniform taxes. And in the Confederate States of American constitution, one of the, it's almost identical to the earlier constitution, except uniformity on taxes that you cannot favor one industry over another and you can't favor one state over another on rails and so on and so on. And uh, that was some of the few changes. They also had a line item veto, which might have been a good idea to have. <laughs> they added they. It's a shame that you can't look at some of the improvements. A bit like World War II, there were some economic measures that Germany took that are worth learning. But because of how bad it was and Hitler, and uh, that you can't say anything positive. So. Yeah, and democratic socialists who have tons in common with national socialists. That there was, you know, some probably a Fed. It's a democratic uh, Nazi. Yeah, <laughs> some uh, some Fed the other day. Uh, did you see this Nazi going around Twitter? And they're like, "Oh, what what do you support? Uh, who are you against?" He's like, "The Jews and the capitalists. Who are you voting for?" Well, Biden, because he I like Biden. He sent uh, rockets to Azov. It's like, right. yeah, it, well, uh, of did. course. <laughs> we know that you guys have tons in common with the democratic socialists. And I can't imagine that, uh, that, that speech goes around. Um, and they never mentioned when Richard Spencer voted for Joe Biden, but just so boring and predictable. Well, I mean, they sent guns to ISIS and Boko Haram and 
you know, it's not just the yeah, Nazis Jabba in Ukraine. Yeah, Jabba al-Nusra. Fighting yeah, HTS, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, when it comes to the Second World War, this is another justification for all future wars. Gaddafi, David Koresh, Saddam Hussein, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping. Uh, just as we took on Hitler and had to, we might have to take on these guys. What are some misconceptions uh, people well, in the West have about the Second World War? I mean, I like it's to steal from Thomas Sowell starting a story in the middle, isn't it? it There's a World War One, wasn't there? Yeah. <laughs> this whole thing was preventable. If, if you start the story in the middle, you'd be like, oh, we have to start Hitler. We're like, well, at a certain point, but why was he even there? If we hadn't had the Treaty of Versailles, if there hadn't have been a World War One, if there hadn't have been a whole bunch of things before Hitler, you wouldn't have to deal with that situation. You, you can't act like he just came out of nowhere and hypnotize everybody or something. I don't know how yeah. they, oh, there's just Hitler, and he was really, really good at speaking or something. No. People, German land had been annexed. They had legit grievances, uh, which, of course, they gave them pretext to do above, you know, to attack all their neighbors and throw people in camps. But, like, it wasn't unique um, to Germany. All the crimes they did, torturing and killing civilians, bombing cities, were done by the Allies as well. I mean, the, the Soviets put people in gulags. The U.S. and Canada put people in internment camps, which had they been losing the war, those people would have starved too. And obviously they nuked two cities in Japan and killed all those civilians. They didn't have a problem bombing Dresden and Cologne and Frankfurt and they didn't care about civilian cities and they tortured and they, they did all the same crimes. And so it takes the Holocaust for there to be this uniquely evil thing that just the Germans did to sort of justify or ignore all the, uh, the blatant war crimes committed by the allies, especially the Soviet Union. And when it comes to the uh, Holocaust specifically, the reason I got interested in this is Deborah Messing posted on Twitter, Amazon, how could you allow a uh, Holocaust denier David Cole to have his book on uh, uh, on Amazon? And I said, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I bought that book by David Cole. I didn't know he denied the Holocaust. And is that it Republican Party was, animals? Uh, You've got yeah. nothing to do with the Holocaust. Yeah. Okay, and, he, and then well, if you be read clear, Appendix he's not a, a Holocaust denier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've interviewed him, right? Like, Yeah, and, and I, Appendix A is, hey, I'm not a Holocaust denier. Here's evidence that the Holocaust did happen, and here's mm -hmm. my thesis. It's in the book that she cites is his collection of evidence as to why he's not a denier. It's just unbelievable. What is the Well, what the they do is any, any revisionist on anything, and every war has revisionists. When, mm -hmm. I mean, I just gave you a bunch of revisionism on the Civil War. Right? Like, yeah. Well, it's not really revised is more like well, everything I was saying is um, just debunking propaganda. But if, if we were going to get again and say, well, how many people died on the first battle of Fredericksburg or something, the number will change over time as we gather more evidence, right? It's conservatively this many, and then it'll probably creep up as you figure out more and more. And that's normal on anything. The Iraq war, like I just told you, Hey, that was a bunch of lies. Here's the people who lied. Here's the papers they were in, right? William Sapphire said there were chemical weapons under Saddam's palaces. It's true that he said that, 
But were there any chemicals in his palate? No. You know, did the media ever clearly come out and say that? No. So that's revision. Revising to say there's info that we know about that we dug up about this historical event, even though it's just 2003. But World War II, that's not allowed. It's um, it's so necessary for the denazification, and the, the it's really horrible what happened. The, the Holocaust is the first like atrocity on film, as to why I think it gets the special attention. Or whatever is they didn't allow film of Hiroshima, just buildings and stuff. None of the bodies on the periphery, you know, which there were, you don't get to see that. It would horrify you. I've seen it. I've seen it. But, um, the first, it, it goes all the way to grade school. Like the first naked body I ever saw was, like second grade Holocaust victims first dead person. I, and only dead people had ever seen same thing. Uh, they showed us piles of corpses and stuff, which is fine, but that is not, you don't get that for world war one or any other conflict. But when world war two, like, Hey, seven year old, look at these emaciated corpses and bones. Don't you hate the Germans? Don't you hate the Nazis? And it's like, yeah, that's pretty sick of looking at a pile of the bodies in Buchenwald or something. Uh, a lot of inf missing information there, though. The Allied bombings, the, the general starvation of the entire area, which was a policy plan by the U.S. and Britain. So you can see the same thing with starving Germans and, and German allies. Uh, that happened in the Civil War, too. Andersonville, 12,500 Yankees starved to death. And a lot of them were emaciated. And they even begged to Lincoln, you can have them. If you send a ship, we'll give you them and you can bring, you can keep them. You can rescue them because we can't take care of them. He said no. He wanted to burden the South with having to feed all these prisoners, which they, you know, obviously they couldn't. The prison guards were just as skinny and desperate. And it was because Sherman was burning the crops. And so these Yankee prisoners starved. And a really sad, sick thing, twist of fate there is when they were finally released and they're on a steamship to go home when the war's over, it blew up in the middle of the Mississippi. The Satania, I believe it was called. The boiler burst and they burned or drowned. So they could have just killed them in the jail. This is horrors of these war, but they had outbreaks of typhus and typhoid and all the same things that happened because all this is due to starvation. Normally, your body can fight diseases like that off. But when you're emaciated and malnourished, then you can die of typhoid. Then you can die of typhus or a whole slew of things. And that was happening in the the German and Polish camps. is a widespread starvation or dying of disease because you're starving. And then they uh, the Hollywood turned it into like throwing babies in ovens and turning people's body parts into furniture, like making lampshades out of skin. And, and you, I've actually gone back and traced the origins of some of these really cartoonishly evil, uh, psych war department lies. And I mentioned Buchenwald earlier, they marched in the city of Weimar in there to see a whole bunch of props. 
and they had cd jackson and uh wilder and all these like hollywood producers there to create a horror show to denazify this population because they had to find something worse because their city been bombed and civilians killed and boiled in the streets you better come up with something because they hate your guts and they did. They had human pelvis ashtrays and shrunken heads and the soap and lampshade. They said they made um, soap out of fat or whatever. It's not true. But um, they had all these props laid out on a table and lied to these people. And those rumors persist after the war. There's no internet or anything. So that's what the Allies said. And they showed it to them. They had actual shrunken heads from South America. They had slamp made of something they said was human skin with tattoos and it's ridiculous and like you're not it doesn't deny the fact that people were put in concentration camps and murdered to say they were not turned into furniture they did not have human hair mattresses full of lice and stuff and some of the crap you know electric floors german shepherds with poison fangs um i can go on and on with all the steven spielberg type version of the holocaust and so what happens is and it's very important to debunk this in my opinion because when someone see it's a slippery slope they hear all this crap all these wild exaggerations and wartime propaganda and they debunk it debunk it debunk it debunk it then they start going oh yeah and uh maybe they didn't there were no mass killings in Auschwitz or whatever right they'll start thinking because Oh yeah, they changed the number on the plaque. We're like, it's still over a million four hundred thousand people. Like that's still a Holocaust. Um, one of the big exaggerations, and this will get me in trouble, is that the Hollywood version of the Holocaust is that everybody got gassed in gas chambers and then burned individually in ovens or something. And it, they'll show the room with like the fifteen ovens at Auschwitz-Birkenau, for example, crematorium one, and. That is nowhere except Hollywood. No historian believes that. Uh, they did not <laughs> burn bodies one at a time in 15 ovens. They dug a big pit outside. They threw all the bodies in the pit, and they burned them all at once. There's photos of it. There's confessions of it under torture. But they, so many witnesses, like, that happened. They burned the bodies outside. Now, if you don't tell people that, and you and there's a lot of people who don't know what I just said. They like, oh, you can't add up the math. Do you know how long it would take to burn <laughs> like uh, six millions? That's the number they come up with. Body. I don't. That's not historical either. The largest number I've ever seen from Raul Hilberg is five point one million. Not that that like lessens that at all. But okay, six million and like four million are supposed to be at Auschwitz, and you're putting them in these ovens. It's not not possible and uh and then you get these witnesses who aren't really witnesses you get a lot of liars that just want to like be part of the drama or whatever like oh yeah and each body had different color smoke and stuff stuff that's just outlandish where the polish was green and the hungarians was dark blue and whatever that's not true and a woman burned longer than a man and stuff like stupid stuff uh but they didn't care at nuremberg they just anybody that could say anything it, it was a kangaroo court, so they'd already said they're guilty. Just come in, come out with whatever outlandish stuff you want. 
But later people go through these accounts and find all these ridiculous things. And then they think, oh, maybe the whole thing is crap. Well, no, the whole thing's not crap. Um, but there is a lot of crap. And that's why revisionists like David Cole can go in and dunk on these things and say, no, that didn't happen. This happened. And, uh, and they're not doing it out of hatred of Jews or love of the Third Reich or any of that. They're just honestly looking at the evidence and saying this is what i think happened david cole's jewish himself he's not anti-semitic i think he supports israel even like he doesn't it, it, they're just going to label you pro-hitler you know if you unless you say six million gas and oven um okay well then <laughs> deborah lipstadt hilberg and other orthodox historians are all anti-semitic because none of them have that number and none of them say that but no one knows that it's a topic that you cannot allow to have nuance on because it's like if you're labeled a holocaust denier that's the end of your career like you can't you know forget any social media payment process or whatever so i'm banned on all that crap anyway so i'll go ahead and tell you but it's the same thing with lincoln too like if you don't like abe lincoln killing a million people it's because you just hate black people and wanted to keep slavery alive or something <laughs> No, <laughs> it, it, it hey, the Iraq War too. If you didn't want to go to war with Iraq, you were just uh, you didn't support the troops and you're pro Saddam. That's what they would say. Like I can't hate Saddam and also not want to go to war with Iraq. Yeah, or hating uh, G Gaddafi, or uh, you know, saying Putin is uh, unjustified. Uh, my understanding, well, they, what they say about Gaddafi, he's Hitler. What they say about Putin, he's Hitler. Akhazinejad, Hitler, Assad, Hitler. Yeah. Hitler has been the justification for every war after. And the U.S. has killed millions of people. Vietnam alone, over two million. Mm -hmm. And they have the Korean War and all these other conflicts and Yugoslavia and Iraq. And I would really blame the Ukraine on uh, Newland and the State Department as well. Like, we are the Nazis. We're killing millions of innocent people. My understanding is Cole's uh, general thesis, if you read Appendix A of Republican Party Animal, he said there were death camps, Operation, uh, the, the Reinhardt camps of Belzec, Sobibor, and Treblinka. There were about 3.5 million killed. And as most controversial thing is, when people go to Auschwitz today, what they're seeing is a Soviet reconstruction of a camp. This is according to the director of the museum, Franciszek Piper, who mm -hmm. David Cole has on camera going through all this i don't see how any of that is like uniquely it's reconstructed yeah. yeah exactly and Maidonic too um is thrown in there and Maidonic has glass windows at the said gas chamber like okay if there was a gas chamber in Maidonic, it wasn't that room because it has glass windows and working showers and one of the 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 whole they did not disguise um gas chambers as showers either that's another war myth there's no reason to have to trick prisoners. You just force them in the room to do whatever you want. You don't have to be like, oh, yeah, it's a shower. Ha ha, psych, it's gas. Like, that's a rumor. And they did that at Dachau, where the United States built a dummy gas chamber that was supposedly coming out of shower heads. They just lowered the roof. But the people there said, no, they built that. <laughs> like, people in our own armies, like, no, this wasn't here. We put this there after the war as a prop. And they still on tour guys go and show them that room and it's labeled a gas chamber. And yet above, and I have photographs of 
above the shower heads is just a couple two by fours in a hole. There's no pipes. There's no lines. There's no way to get gas in there. And that wouldn't even work with Zyklon B anyway, as I'm sure you know, like it's pellets. That's not, you can't, it's dumb. It's so stupid. Like, uh, but they're like, well, if you, you, you can't say something like that without saying, so you denying the whole thing. No one died. You like, you like Hitler, which is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> Fuck no. Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Like fuck, fuck all these governments starting these wars and killing millions of people. I understand his where he's coming from. I think he probably had a raging case of PTSD from World War One. He was blinded as a runner and he saw Germany destroyed and the land taken away and Danzig and all that. And he he blamed the Jews for the munition strike in the papers and he thought we were winning and we were they turned their back on us at home blah 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 but again why did you annex all this land from germany like what do you think was going to happen later that's why we have geneva conventions that say even if you win a war you don't take territory of course that you know the israelis never paid attention to that and uh even like even when russia took donbass and crimea they had a referendum and voted for it through like the populace had some sort of say. Now you could say, oh, they rigged those or whatever, but I don't think so. I mean, of course they voted to join Russia. They, Ukraine had been attacking them for the last eight years, about 14,000 people dead. They said their president got on TV and said, our kids will be going to school. Their kids will be cowering in the basement as they're shooting artillery at elementary schools. I mean, they, that was a provocation. And the fact that people in Donbass would vote to join Russia, I don't doubt it. Because what's the alternative? Get, get get eaten up by Kiev in Crimea. I mean, that had been part of Russia until 1954 and spoke Russian. And you, you have a choice. Join the state full of corrupt oligarchs, 15 billion euros in debt, or... Uh, join the Russian Federation and avoid all those problems, you know, is well, yeah. And the best indicator that uh, those results were uh, legitimate as far as, you know, elections can be legitimate is uh, like eight uh, years earlier, that uh, same population voted heavily for Viktor Yanukovych. And once they lost their guy after the Maidan revolution, thanks to Victoria Newland, kind of the Eurasian affairs assistant. Yeah. The, uh, then, yeah. Then the they national voted for democracy. It, it's exactly yeah. what, what you'd expect uh, that they voted yeah. the same, uh, the, the same direction uh, a few years later. It's like, I really Mississippi went Republican. I don't know. We're going to have to audit. Those right. Right. Results. It's like, no, do you, do you think sure. we could have that situation? Like if Biden stole another one or, or if Trump wins either way, one side's going to be livid. You know, if Donald Trump becomes president again, you could see like Oregon or California just saying, all right, we're out of here. And uh, if Biden wins again, you could see almost the entire old South and a lot of the Midwest saying, no way. We don't believe the results and we want to secede. Look how violent they got even while Trump, when he was president and imagine, and that was one of the fears in 2020 that if he won, that they were just going to, they're holding cities hostage. That's what happened with Wisconsin, uh, the Supreme Court. It was tied and like the tiebreaker believed there was fraud and all, but they basically threatened him 
and threaten the whole the city. So the easiest thing to do is just go against Trump. I mean, that's how democratic is that? You're just threatening the the judges, you know. <laughs> Do you think it could get that bad after 2024? Like, no matter who wins, half the country's going to be pissed off. I love this uh, quote from your book, Separation of Business and State. You said, when liberals don't have a witch to hunt, they will just make one up with all the same vigor. After all, it's never been about justice, rather about feeling morally superior to others. So when it comes to uh, providing a genuine refutation of things like national socialism, uh, what is it about uh, the separation of business and state that is important for people to know? Yeah, well, the national socialists in Germany, too, also had a racial component, so we believe in racial teleology and all that mess. But yeah, the liberals, they use, they do all these moral pontifications as camouflage to just mask their brutal desire to control other people's lives. That whole Karen culture needing to tell people what to do and boss them around. They'll use the environment or the children or some unassailable good. Like, Oh, we have to save the planet or something like who disagrees with that. But their premise is wrong. Like if you don't give us these taxes and carbon credits and all these things we want, the hole in the ozone is going to melt the ice caps and flood the world or something, you know, like do some Noah's Ark level cataclysmic event will happen unless you give us a thing. Look at all of them that ran around saying we only have eight years or 12 years left to turn around. They were saying that that time has passed. Nothing happened. Um, Al Gore used CGI footage from the day after tomorrow and it acted like it was real ice caps melting took a picture of Kilimanjaro in the summer and one in the winter and said, Oh my God, look at all the ice that's gone away. And, you know, like, but people need to realize when the state gets involved with business, even if you had some benevolent Ron Paul type of state, whatever, no one could possibly have the, all the knowledge you needed to make the right decisions that are, are just sort of born out of the market competing uh, with other markets competing within itself. You can't, it can't be done. And so whatever they get involved with, they make it more expensive. You can see that with our healthcare, uh, even the post office, I mean, everything they touch, it's the reverse Midas touch. What I said, instead of gold, everything they touch turns the fecal matter. I'll put it that way. Well, it, it, it's like progressives will say, well, uh, we should lower the cost and make it uh, universal, uh, not realizing that the military, the one thing they're constantly complaining about, that has more government funding than almost anything else. And as they get more uh, college and home and health care subsidies, the price in that drastically increases. Yeah. And with college, especially guaranteed student loans, yeah. guaranteed student loans, Department of Education, which shouldn't even exist. All that does is tells the college, hey, up the price because the government's going to pay for whatever percent of it or give them a loan and it's guaranteed. So, you know, all these people have all this capital. And so the price goes up. Duh. And it just leads to monopoly. Like a lot, a lot of Reed Martin, Lockheed Martin as we want. It's like 99% of their business is state contracts. If what they call private prisons, 
they're not private when a hundred percent of their revenues from the state, right? They're not, they're not, who's paying them to uh, hold prisoners, the government. So how is it a private institution? It's just an extension of the state. Whenever you allow the state to pick winners and losers in the marketplace, you're going to run into nepotism. You're going to just have interest groups lobby the state for money. They'll spend a couple million. They'll get you know a billion in return or a couple hundred million in return. And so the way to fix that is to separate business and state. Peter Schiff has this analogy of if you, instead of chasing around all the alcoholics, why don't you stop the bartender giving away free alcohol? Uh, you can't have the government come in and say, um, you know, Acme or whatever, and like Monsanto or whoever they're going to favor today is going to get, you know, or let's use a real life example like uh, Pfizer. They're going to get all these government grants and all this money and we're going to mandate the vaccine force people to buy their product. And even if Medicare or Medicaid are paying for some of these shots for some of the population that's still paid for through your taxes anyway. And so what are they going to charge? They're going to charge a lot because they can, uh, it's more, you did, you just judicious about it when people have to spend their own money. Nobody wastes money more than when it's not theirs and they didn't have to work for it. And, and they have a monopoly on printing it. Yeah. Well, that's the other way. They just digitize it into existence, which over time will inflate everything, but not immediately. So as soon as you grant yourself the money, you can go buy up real assets or award your friends or whatever. And then because you've artificially expanded the money supply without it being tied to labor, the value of money goes down. That's what inflation, inflation is not prices going up. It's the value of money going down. I take the Austrian perspective of that. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the, the reason I think books like this are so important to plug when having discussions about Israel, uh, the Holocaust, the world wars, the civil war is because uh, w when people are so uh, hypnotized by the fake black versus white divide, Jewish versus Gentile divide, there's actually a true divide out there, which is freedom versus coercion. And yes. when it comes to uh, actually giving people uh, something to substitute this bigotry with, you got to hate the Germans, then you got to hate the Muslims, now you got to hate the Russians, soon we got to hate the Chinese. This is an actual divide that we can have with uh, books like this, Separation of Business and State by Ryan Dawson. Uh, link in the description below. Final question, Mr. Dawson. Thank you so much for your time. What is the most important uh, lesson you learned from reading the works of Thomas Sowell? Ooh. He has so many books. I'm not even done reading all the Thomas Sowell books. But, you know, um, I kind of got on to Thomas Sowell a little late. I already agreed with a lot of his positions. That's why it was recommended to me. But from reading Thomas Sowell lets me articulate my thoughts a lot better because he, he has gone and done the data and um, presents it in such a, in a way that only somebody with his experience and age could do. You know, he, he grew up hearing all this stuff. Uh, he's a, a black man from North Carolina, moved to New York early on and 
just experienced life. He's 90 years old now, I believe. He has 90th birthday recently. And um, to hear it, to hear things from him, it's great that he's black and it shouldn't matter, but it does because one of, if a lot of anyone else has said some of the things he say, we get accused of prejudice. But here's that this is a black man that grew up through all of it. And one of the most educated people I've ever read. I mean, that every single Thomas Sowell book, I'm like, this is the best book. And then I get a different one. I'm like, this is the best book. I have the same feelings about Ron Paul sometimes. He puts it, he's made these arguments so many times. He puts it out so cleanly, the Austrian economics perspective. It's just beautiful. And uh, I don't know, I have like a most, the most important Thomas Sowell point. I'd have to think on that. Uh, well, oh, while hmm. you think about it, it, look, it look. that's a, that's a hard thing to cat to like turn in number one, number two, number three. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. Look, look, let me give mine while you uh, think about it. He wrote a book in 1986 titled "Civil Rights: Rhetoric or Reality," and he said in there, one of the great scams you have to look out for is when people pick their start date. So uh, progressives will say, you know, after the Civil Rights Act passed, we saw an increase in black incomes at 4% for the next 20 years. And this, thankfully, we had the Civil Rights Act. We also saw blacks uh, going into professional occupations, uh, which required certification. Sol says, well, why are you picking the date of the Civil Rights Act to see whether or not the Civil Rights Act is responsible for these things. What you want to do is look at the previous 30 years and see if this was a trend that they just locked onto or if it actually was created as a result of Lyndon Johnson. Kind of like banning guns in Australia? The crime exactly. rate is already going down? <laughs> it, it, perfect yeah. analogy. The other one is occupational safety and health. Uh, the workplace deaths drastically decreasing. Then OSHA comes in and continues, and the trend continues in spite of them. But what Seoul actually does is look at the previous 35 years and say that this increase in black income was already taking place before the Civil Rights Act was enacted, and you actually saw blacks going into these professional occupations at a higher rate before the Civil Rights Act because uh, things like uh, affirmative action also made it more costly to take risks on uh, blacks mm -hmm. who had uh, less experience and uh, were of a uh, l lower status. So it also uh, put people in positions over their head. So exactly. you made it done well yep. at a good school, but you got put in a great school and then you failed out. Exactly. So, so Thomas Sowell saying, what is your start date and why was uh, one of the uh, great things I learned from him when it comes to things like black rednecks and white liberals. I saw on your site, uh, one of the things, one of the uh, books that you recommend, uh, but anything come to mind as far as soul lessons from that? Yeah, those are all good. I also like his little points where he says, he always says, compared to what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who's going to pay for it? He has these little aphorisms he could go. It's kind of like Hume's fork. If you're familiar with David Hume, Hume on the Inquiry of the Senses, Thomas Soul, he doesn't have like an object, but he's like, let's go through these points. Compared to what? <laughs> Who's going to pay Compared for to it? what? At what cost and what's your uh, hard data, I think. are, are What's are your hard data? Yeah. At what cost, you know, or who's going to pay? Um, some of his interviews on Liberty Pen are just like, the acoustics must be bad in here. He just, like, <laughs> he asked that woman, are you have a plan that's going to get rid of the bottom 20%? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that was another great thing where he said, you know, uh, there's always going to be a bottom 20%. What you're actually looking at with these incomes is these, you know, sections of people, not the actual people themselves. This was in basic yeah, economics. Yeah, because they're mobile. Yeah. yeah, he says, <laughs> so in order to do this, to see if there's any income mobility, because according to progressives, you're born poor, you die poor, the rich stay rich forever. He goes, we can actually follow individuals and look at the average uh, income of someone at age 16 and then the average income of someone at uh, age 46. According to progressivism, those should be the exact same number more or less adjusted for inflation. He you goes, of course not. You get one. higher incomes as you get older. It's the equivalent of saying, mm -hmm. I went to a high school and uh, the average uh, senior was 18 years old and I came back 10 years later and the average senior was still 18 years old. There's no one aging at this high school. No, they're different people in the same group. That it's was like the wage gap between men and women. Um, yeah. One of the things he does is taking statistics and just throwing it on the wall saying okay let's look at your claim let's look at the data and liberals especially will always look for bias and prejudice immediately to explain something so we'll take average average income of latinos average income of east asians or something east asians is much higher than latinos so we must be favoring the east asians or we must be prejudiced to latinos and he goes oh okay What's the average age of East Asians? It's 42. You know, what's the average age of Latinos? It's in the 20s. Who earns more? People in their 40s or people in their 20s? Across all people in their 40s. It's simple explanation of why Asians out-earn. Now, there could be a bunch of other reasons. There still could be prejudice, whatever, but you need to have data for that. A lot of things that they'll they'll chalk up to malice have a they didn't look, they're only looking at one data point and say, well, did you, did you take into account this and that? Um, what's his name? Charles is it Murray, the guy that wrote the bell curve. Um, mm -hmm. Charles Murray, I think, or Murphy. My mind's escaping me now, but he had a second book where he talked about, uh, like it was like fish town and something. It was, he was just comparing locations instead of races. And he's saying, look, you get the same, um, differentiation in IQ income and all this stuff just going from here to there, the exact same makeup, you know, just some small town in Kentucky and some other cosmopolitan area or whatever. Uh, you know, so is there some geographic prejudice whenever it says things you, to, to imagine that you're going to have equality outcome in all occupations is insane. People have different interests. Why aren't there more male nurses and why aren't there more female engineers? not interested no one's making it that way but yeah thomas souls his ability to just shatter goofy statistics by common sense is one of his best lessons check out ancreport.com along with the separation of business and state mr dawson thank still you so on much amazon for... knock on oh. wood <laughs> still on amazon links will be in the description mr dawson thank you so much for your time thank you